You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. All right, well, good morning. And again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. I really hope uh, you have a great day and are really spoiled and treasured uh, for the person that you are and all that you do. And so uh, for those that are joining us and don't know who I am, my name is Richard and welcome to our online service. We're so glad that you're able to join with us today. And uh, we're jumping straight into our series called Unstoppable. And we actually started this series three years ago. We haven't been doing it consec- or con- uh, continuously for three years, but we've taken a book in the Bible called the Book of Acts, and we've divided it up into four seasons, and we're in season three um, of that. And so uh, I want to go all the way back to the beginning and the words of Jesus in the Book of Acts. And if you want to get a, just a brief, it's 28 chapters, but if you want to get a s- summation of what Acts is all about, really is in this verse, and it's Jesus saying to his disciples, his followers at the time, just before he ascends. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, when Jesus is saying this, he has a church of dozens, right? So more than 12, probably not more than 120. Now, if you go to any kind of pastor's conference or leader's conference, and you say, I have a church of dozens, you're not the main speaker, right? You're not selling your books after the after the sessions or whatever. And so in some ways, it's kind of underwhelming after three years of ministry, arguably the greatest ministry leader ever, Jesus. He has a handful of people. And then he, he says these incredible words to them. And true to his words, the, the movements, the early church grows um, geographically, but also sociologically. It takes in different kinds of people. And so we're not catching up about 15 years after Jesus has said that. been some incredible things. If you go back to season one and season two, we've got that all online. It's really covering some incredible growth. But as it's grown uh, numerically and uh, as grown um, in its diversity, it's also created some tensions and some conflicts, right? Imagine that. And, um, and so today's uh, message as we turn to Acts chapter 15 is really the culmination and kind of a break or tipping point, if you will, of some of these tensions as this growth has happened and how they handle this particular conflict and tension has ramifications all the way down the future of the church. In fact, you and I are affected by the decisions that they work out today. And so will you join me in Acts chapter 15? We're going to read uh, a couple of, um, chunks of scripture and talk about it as we work through that uh, message today. So verse uh, 1 of chapter 15 says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So we'll pause there for a little bit. We'll continue just now, but just to kind of give you a context of what's going on here, that's what's the significance of this. If you were a Jew um, at that time, if you were a Jew, you were raised to believe that you were the chosen people of God 
and that non-Jews or Gentiles, just another way to describe non-Jews, uh, were unclean, ceremoniously unclean. Their, their, their lifestyle, their practices were very different to that of Jewish people. Now, what's been happening since Jesus uttered those words in 15 years is they've gone and did what Jesus said. They've begun to bear witness to him and by his spirit, seen some incredible things. Majority of the church at this time is Jewish Christians, right? People who were Jewish but now put their faith in the Messiah. But over time as well, some Gentiles have also turned in faith to Jesus. And so some of these Jewish Christians had begun to accept these Gentile converts primarily because these Gentiles were God-fearing people. In fact, they found themselves in the synagogues. They were allowed to do it. They adopted some of the customs and the practices um, of, uh, of, the, of the Jews at the time. And so, in other words, culturally, these Gentiles were already becoming uh, Jewish. And so, in that way, it was a little bit easier for them to be embraced by the Jewish Christians. Now, as we began season three, we saw that Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the Holy Spirit in the church at Antioch, which was kind of like a modern-day Toronto. It was very diverse. It was a major city at the time, and that church was really a, a diverse, growing church. They set them aside to go and um, start these missionary journeys, particularly and specifically towards the Gentiles. And as they're doing this, they see an influx of Gentiles, but these are not Gentiles hanging out the synagogues. These are pagan Gentiles, culturally pagan, very different to the Jewish customs and cultures. They begin to turn to Jesus, and they begin to become part of the church, but now there's a conflict because their lifestyle is so radically different from Jewish Christians. And so some people rise and say, hey, in order for these Christians to be Christians, they need to become Jewish as well. And so this begins, there's a sharp dispute, it's just a way they began to argue. Paul and Barnabas and these people began to have an argument of, ultimately, what does it mean to be a Christian? They were saying, unless you become Jewish, you can't be saved. And so the intensity of this moment is summed up. And so you might think, well, okay, that sounds fun for them. But that's really irrelevant today. But the reality is, even today, we often have this, unless you become, you cannot be a Christian. Unless you become something you cannot be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Unless you become Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, you cannot be a Christian. Unless you become pro-life, pro-choice, you're LGBTQ affirming or you're LGBTQ condemning, you cannot be a Christian. Unless you become Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, unless you belong to this church, this denomination, unless you believe this about that, you cannot be a Christian. Unless you behave in these certain ways, you cannot be a Christian. Ever heard some of those things? Ever seen and read some of that thing? I mean, social media is full of this kind of thinking. It's full of people assuming because of their stance, unless you don't adopt that stance, you cannot be a Christian. You can't be in fellowship. And it's really just the argument that they were making. Hey, unless these Gentiles become Jewish, they can't be the people of God. Surely not. And so you must understand and appreciate their, their entire worldview and value system is being rocked. The longest time they've been told the stories of how we're the people of God. This is what makes us distinct and different from everyone else by doing these practices. Now you're saying none of that matters. These guys just get a free pass into this thing called the people of God and the church of God. And so a lot is at stake then. And obviously a lot is still at stake for us. What does it mean really to be a Christian? What makes me distinct as a Christian? Is it who I vote for? what I believe about certain doctrines, the kind of church I'm with. 
And so, to be fair, it's not to say that those things are unimportant. I think Jesus and the Christian faith should shape how you vote, what stances you take on certain issues, but does that make you a Christian? This is the question before them and us today. And so how do they resolve it? Well, let's continue in the passage and to see how do they go about resolving pretty intense um, issue at stake. Verse 6 says, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, shows that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Now, what's Peter talking about here? Well, Peter, if you're not familiar with him, he's the lead apostle. You know, Jesus spoke, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. And he really takes a prominent um, role in the early church and establishing. So he's well-respected. And so he gets up, and they're having this discussion. And he says, and if you're unfamiliar, in season two, we talked about what he's talking about here. And he's talking about an incident he had with a guy called Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier in his household. And and Cornelius was God-fearing, so in some ways he had adopted some of the practices. He was leaning in a little bit to the monotheistic religion of the Jews. But Peter witnesses that, hey, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And so who am I? And in fact, God reveals to him in a vision very clearly, don't call unclean what I've said clean. And so right there, even Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is saying, Peter, your old paradigms are not going to work with this new thing, this new people that I'm creating. Don't call unclean. They're clean because of me and the purity, and the Holy Spirit falls upon him. And so he goes back and they're like, wow, this is amazing. Clearly the Gentiles. But there was only a handful of those examples at the time. Now it's an influx. and like, it's really raised this issue. But he's arguing from the point of view like, hey, we've seen it. God's accepted them. Who are you and I to say that they're not accepted? And so he argues that. He talks about Cornelius. He talks about the precedent that God had set with Cornelius and his household. But then he also, I love it, just Peter's honesty and frankness. He says, and by the way, our ancestors and us, we've never been able to live up to this Mosaic law. So why on earth would we put that onto these Gentiles? I mean, I just love his honesty. It's like we've never been able to fulfill our own laws. Why would we then put it onto people who are so very foreign to And then we're not going to read it just for sake of time, but the following verses, Paul and Barnabas get up and they tell just of the signs and wonders that God's been doing, some miraculous things that God's been doing among the Gentiles. And it, it's really the, 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 it's getting quiet in the building, if you will. And then James. James is arguably the leader um, of the church, particularly the Jewish church. James is the brother of Jesus. And he gets up and he's going to bring this to a consensus and he's going to bring a decision. And he takes the experiences of both Peter and what he's heard from Paul and Barnabas. And then he says, brothers and sisters, by scripture, the Old Testament, it always pointing towards this was always the plan of God, not to be exclusive, but to invite the nations into the family of God. And so he does a great thing. He matches experience with scripture, right? That's a good precedent and practice for us as well, to be judging our experiences 
based upon the character of God as revealed through his scripture. And so they reach a consensus. And so here we go in verse 19. And so just by the way, just as an aside, it's really cool to see how the early church works out their differences. You think about it, this robust discussion. I mean, he talks a sharp dispute, a robust discussion. It talks about making a decision in community. This is not, I'm going to go pray by myself up on the mountain, James. You know, I was, I was tight with Jesus. And I'm going to come back and tell you, no, this was a community of elders, of leaders that were weighing in. They looked at their tradition. They looked at their experience and they looked at scripture. And lastly, they were led by the spirit to come to this conclusion. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. The law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, this might be underwhelming to you, but this is a groundbreaking decision. The fact that you and I as Gentiles can come into the faith and not have to take on any Jewish custom and practices thanks to this decision, this council. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And so there's three things I want to distill today that's really pertinent for them and for us. But I see a beautiful truth that becomes a principle that is in practically outworked in their context. And I think it has a lot of uh, application and implication for us. And so the first thing, when I come back as to what Peter said, the first thing is this gospel truth. They preserve an essential part of the gospel. It's this, we are saved by grace alone. Therefore, we are recipients of God's grace. We're recipients of grace. He says it's through the grace of Jesus that we're saved, just like they are, right? It's not about customs and laws and upholding them, even though we didn't, weren't able to uphold the laws. It's purely and sheerly through the grace, the undeserved, inexhaustible favor and kindness and goodness of God towards us. That's the basis of the Christian faith. I love what one author, Jerry Bridges, talks about in terms of the necessity of grace. He says it like this, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. I think he's onto something there. And for some of you, this is going to be great news because you're very well aware of your worst days, your bad days. In fact, it might consume you a lot. You might be one of those people who thinks that surely God's tired of me. Surely God is sick and tired of, of my dysfunction and mess up life. And the message is this. We are saved by grace. It's not your good day. It's not your bad day. It's not your obedient day. It's not your disobedient day. It's the grace of Jesus, really little about you in that essence. It's about his obedience and his fulfillment of the laws that he did on our behalf. And then for some of us, this might be really hard to swallow because surely I'm a good person. Surely something of what I do contributes to this, right? Are you telling me that none of that matters? Well, in the context of salvation, I'm telling you none of it matters. I'm telling you none of it matters. I mean, you can live a pristine life. You can live a life that you try in your own effort to come clean, but you will always come up short in terms of the standard of God, right? And so I think it should both uh, give us confidence and humility in the same way. Um, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's saving us and saving them. And who are we now to put a burden that we would never be able to keep anyways on them? And so I want to be clear here. It wasn't that the Mosaic law was bad, was wrong. In fact, the nation of Israel saw it as a gift. 
And the mosaic law is complex because it was made up of different things and at least three things. One thing is it was made up of the moral law. We would understand maybe the Ten Commandments. That hasn't been done away. It's just like, hey, it doesn't matter. Now go, you know, murder, steal, that. No, it was the moral law. But then there was what was like the more the cultural laws, the civil and ceremonious laws that made you clean, dietary concerns, you know, what you could and couldn't do and that kind of thing. And so and that's what they're getting caught up with. Like, hey, these Gentiles, okay, great. They believe in Jesus like we believe in Jesus, but they sure live differently to us. They should adopt our lifestyle because we're the people of God. But Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, Paul writing later, and uh, and he makes it very clear that the, the law is always really pointing toward Jesus. Jesus really is becomes the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. It doesn't do away with it. He fulfills it. And so he says it like this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, this is really radical for Paul. If you don't know much of his story, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like he was the guy that kept close detail of what people were doing, weren't doing, and he was the first person to tell you, you're not living up to the law. It was a Pharisee. It was their job, and their heart, um, I think motive, was pure in some sense. They felt like that was the way to honor God. That was the way uh, to make God pleased. And he even went so far as to persecute Christians until he encountered Jesus. And so for him to have a total mindset shift and change just tells you the power of the gospel, right? To really liberate and set us free. And so the question then would be for you and I, are you right now resisting or receiving the sheer grace of God in your life? And be careful how you answer that because we can, the right answer we know is like, oh, receiving it. But in what ways are you maybe still trying to earn? Maybe you're walking with Jesus for some time, you know, for a lot of us, maybe you're Christians, and that's and a wonderful thing, but it's so easy for Christians to kind of have a, unless you become, you can't really be saved. And I think in my early days of Christianity, I probably had a lot of that, unless you believe this about this, or believe what I believed about this about the Bible, you can't really be saved, or unless you spoke in tongues, you can't be saved, or unless you got baptized this way, you can't be saved, or unless you, you, know, you had this expression of worship, you can't really be saved, or we're more saved than those people out there, and I think... Um, praise God, a bit of maturity and over time, you kind of you kind of need to get some of that naivety out of you. Um, the body of Christ is very diverse. I and mean, We're very careful to stand in a place of moral judgment upon other people's ways of uh, practicing uh, their following of Jesus. So the second thing is, okay, great. Here's a universal truth, right? A gospel truth. And gosh, I'm so glad. And this is why we need to still fight for grace because it's so easy to try and attach things, grace plus something, grace plus something. When it comes to salvation, it's grace. It's grace alone. It's grace alone. The second thing is then, okay, great. Well, then how do we apply this to the situation? And so I love it. They're getting very pragmatic now. Here's the gospel principle. As recipients of grace, we're now to be extensions of grace to others, right? As we've received grace, we're now to be conduits or extensions of that grace to others, right? We can't stand in a place where we've received something, but then we withhold it from others, okay? And so, you know, James gets up and says, yeah, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. If they're turning to God, who are we to now put all these laws and regulations and ceremonies in front of them? That really doesn't matter in the consideration of the gospel and of salvation. In other words, they're saying, listen, the gospel is demanding enough. This is not watering it down, by the way. This is just removing unnecessary obstacles 
to the obstacle of the gospel. The gospel can be offensive. It's, a, it's offensive to our pride. It's, it's, it's offensive to our self-righteousness. It's a, offensive to sometimes a way of lies. And so like, hey, that, that's, that's hard enough. So let's clear everything else and, and get them before the gospel. We should not insist people become like us, is what they're saying, right? And gosh, isn't that temptation there? You know, you're, you're part of a church or you, you're part of a certain culture, and it's like, in order to be saved, you should also become like us. And I think missionaries have done um, some mistakes in that in the past, right? Gone to certain cultures and nations. And on the strength of their culture, thought like, well, that's the Christian way to do things. And the beauty of it is there's such diversity. I mean, Revelations talks about such the diversity of every nation, every tongue, every language, every tribe in its expression coming before uh, Jesus and worshiping him. And what binds us is grace. That's what gets us in the same room together, even though we're vastly different when we look about all these other things. And so here's the principle as extensions of grace. Grace orientates us or at least reorientates us to move outward towards people, particularly people who are different, who have a different lifestyle to us, who are Gentiles, if you will, in this context, and it moves our mission towards them, not expecting people to come toward us. It's stepping into their world now versus asking them to step into our world. It's Paul and Barnabas and the church there and the majority Jewish Christians now stepping into a foreign world for them, a world that was full of a lifestyle that wasn't just different, but for all intents and purposes, very offensive to a lot of them. Right? Like they were eating food that they weren't allowed to eat. They were doing some practices that they weren't allowed to, to practice. And so now you're asking me to step into their world. Isn't it easier just to ask them to come to our world? Well, obviously, from our point of view, it's always easier to ask someone to come into my world, right? I'm in my comfort zone. But grace, if we've received grace, you think about Jesus. Didn't he model this? Didn't he step into our world? Didn't he leave the comfort of heaven and step into our fallen world and brokenness of our humanity? Isn't he our example? And so, and didn't he pollute or corrupt himself? He didn't, right? He, he managed to stay holy even amongst. And so there's a way that we can now begin to grace thrust us into other people's worlds, not putting extra demands upon them. And so there's the principle. You know, they talk about um, ethnocentricity and Christocentric. What does it mean to be ethnocentric? Well, the reality is all of us have a bit of ethnocentricity about us. In other words, you know, just purely from the fact that you've grown up in a certain way, in a certain culture, in certain expressions, naturally you're going to judge other people from that place. Um, and particularly sometimes they're going to have a moral high ground, my culture is better than yours. And so, you know, when you're in a, in a country like Canada, and particularly like a city like Toronto, the, the gift of it is that you're really exposed to so many different cultures, right? So many different ways to look at the world that's different to you. Um, people have very different ideas about time. Okay. I spent 30 years of my life on the continent of Africa. There is a thing called African time. It's very different to Western time. In our church, we talk about Filipino time. And so we have different ideas about time. We have different ideas about food. We have different ideas about how much the individual versus the collective, the community is important. We have different ideas about worship. We have different ideas about music taste. We have different ideas about how much emotion or lack of emotion we should show. Do you understand? So all of those things are shaped by how we grew up. 
And we must be careful to begin to judge people um, and just say, well, I, my clock, my clock says three o'clock. So it means we need to start at three o'clock. That's a, it's one way of looking at time. And so what happens when we encounter grace and encounter Jesus, we're now asked to not deny our culture, we're to be proud in our ethnicity and, and where we're from and that kind of thing. I think scripture doesn't tell us about denying that. It just mustn't become the driving thing anymore. Christ is the driving thing in his kingdom and his culture. And what it does is it really puts me in a great place to be able to learn from cultures that are different from me. I may not fully, I may still want to be like, if it's three o'clock, it's three o'clock. You really need to be on time. But I can appreciate the importance of how other people see time or worship or music or whatever it may be. Um, grace resists any attempt to restrict Christianity to any particular racial or national or cultural or ethnic or social group. And then lastly, it moves from this universal truth, recipients of grace, to this principle, we're now extensions of grace to people. Gospel really empowers us now practically to live it out as we extend grace to others through practical expressions of grace. And so the last two verses can be a little bit confusing because it's kind of like, hey, we're saved by grace. And then they say, I think we should need write to the Gentiles. Seems good to us in the Holy Spirit to write to the Gentiles to say, hey, just obey these feudal laws. Abstain from, basically, I'm going to summarize it as this. Abstain from pagan practices in order to maintain unity with your Jewish Christians and your witness amongst the Jews. It's like, okay, uh, so have we, have we kind of come full circle back to legalism here? Is this legalism or is this love? Well, the way to answer that is, is that legalism or is love is to ask your motive. What's your motive? It's legalism if you're trying to do that for order, in order to earn God's favor or his salvation, right? That's what the, the Mosaic law and the ceremonies were trying to do, is trying to preserve the distinctiveness uh, as God's people. And Jesus, like Jesus now, is the distinctive. But is it loving to consider other people's cultures and how maybe your freedom, an expression of your freedom, can be an off-putting way and actually did disservice to the very unity and mission that the gospel is asking us to preserve. And so there's a lot of wisdom here of what they're trying to do. It's like, hey, you guys are saved by grace. You're the people of God. We're a, we're a body of Christ. We're a family. We're a church. But in order for us to have fellowship with one another, in order for us to have unity with one another, could you abstain from eating food that's full of blood, which is really offensive to your Jewish brothers and sisters? Is that a big deal to you? Uh, could you maybe not eat uh, food that's been sacrificed to idols, even though they're in a clear conscience they could do that. It wasn't breaking any law. In fact, later on, Paul has some other things to say about that. What he's doing is he's appealing to love. He's saying that grace empowers us, doesn't just save us, but it empowers us to express or restrict our freedom in Christ in loving, winsome ways. What? For the sake of unity within the church and the witness of the church. Oh, and by the way, Gentile Christians, if you're going to try and help us win the Jews, they're going to take one look at your lifestyle and be so off-putting by it. So there goes your witness. So if you abstain from some of these things, we might have a chance to actually win some of these Jews. And so they're appealing to them to act in loving ways towards their brothers and sisters in Christ and towards the people that they're trying to reach. And I think the same thing applies to us, right? Um, and it's really hard, particularly in our context, when anything that restricts your personal freedom is seen as bad. And actually, we're seeing this in practice. We're seeing the truth of grace in practice here 
And grace sometimes calls you out. We have liberty in Jesus. You have so much freedom in Christ, it's crazy, right? I mean, explore that. It, it should come to a place of scary, scariness in you, and you're kind of getting a grasp of how freeing grace actually is. And then grace then says, out of love, is it loving to live out your freedom in that way to these people? Is it building a bridge or breaking down a bridge with the people that you're trying to reach? Is it causing disunity and fellowship to, to suffer with the brothers and sisters? And so it's asking you and I to consider others. That's what grace does, right? It asks you and I to consider others. And it may ask you and I to restrict the freedom we have in clear conscience, but for the sake of these people who it may not. And so this could, I mean, any number of things, you know, when, when we first planted this church, we, I mean, Bert and I are talking a lot about just how we were going to run a church service. We had come from very different church backgrounds that run, ran church services very differently to the way that we started running. But one of the reasons why we made those decisions is for this very thing, is we were trying to make things that could be offensive that don't need to be offensive to an unbelieving people, we're trying to remove offenses in order that, you know, that the gospel. And so any kind of liturgy that seems strange or weird or whatever, we shaped a service towards trying to be a bit more contextual for the people and people that we were trying to reach. What does it mean about you and I? Maybe to change our lifestyle. And again, this is challenging stuff, right? So grace is great, but it's also challenging. Challenging our lifestyles to prioritize other people, right? And so, you know, we talk about, um, I know we're going to summer and some of our small groups are taking a break, but you know, a big part of our church is small groups. A big part of our church is prioritizing that time that we take to meet with a smaller group of people to do life with, to do ministry with. But that means a demand on your schedule, right? It may mean a demand on your budget. You've got to travel to to make that time. And it could be quite easy to say, well, I've got stuff to do. I've got things to go. And so grace would actually ask us, are you prioritizing? Are you sacrificing? Are you absorbing some of your freedom? Are you restricting some of your freedom for the sake of unity, fellowship, and the mission? What about entering another's world? Maybe there's someone at work or on campus. Maybe their lifestyle is vastly different to yours. And maybe if you're really honest, maybe it's very offensive to you, right? What would grace demand of you? It's not to say that you have to embrace and celebrate everything that they do. Clearly not. We know that. But what does grace do? It moves towards people. It doesn't back away from people. It moves towards people. Um, instead of expecting them to enter my world first, I make an effort to step into their world. Why? Because I'm free in Jesus. My identity is not wrapped up solely in all these other things. My identity is wrapped up in his grace for me and in changing me. And so there's a great quote. Uh, many people have a different, attributed to different people, but it was a, it was a quote um, throughout the church that says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things charity, or we could say in all things love. And that's a great way to kind of end off this, what this Jerusalem Council did. In essentials unity, there are some things worth fighting for. A gospel of grace is worth fighting for to preserve. That we don't entertain anything to be added to that. Be very careful. Woe are we if we add anything to the sheer gospel of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will later on write to the Ephesian church and say, it is by grace through faith that you and I saved. And you guess what? Even that faith, it's a gift of God. And so really, it's all him. It's all him. But when we encounter that grace, 
Things change in our lives, should change in our lives. We should consider others in a different light, consider other cultures, and even other lifestyles in a graciousness that perhaps we didn't have before. Jesus modeled that perfectly to us. He said, freely you've received, and I freely give. And so today I want to pray and end off with that and just ask you to consider right now, are you resisting or are you receiving God's grace in your life? Are you trying to strive towards a place of relationship with God? Or are you able to receive the grace and the gift that God has before you? And then for us, for many of us who are Christians, who are walking with Jesus, is grace putting claims upon our lives? Is it, is it restricting our freedoms in ways out of love for others? Or are we just playing into the value of today of expressing our individualism? No, don't let anyone or anything tell me how to live my life. Well, grace tells us how to live our lives. Grace tells us how to act towards others in gracious ways. And so let me pray, uh, and then we'll wrap this up. And so, Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the way that the early church worked out this core issue, God, that has absolutely had ramifications down the centuries of the church, Lord. And we know even in our day and age, there's always a temptation to add, to add and to judge people based upon other things that are peripheral to grace. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have a fresh encounter with your grace today in our personal lives, God, that our worst days makes us, never puts us beyond your reach of grace, God, and our best days never put us beyond the need for your grace, God. And so we encounter fresh your grace in our lives today, God, would, would even those that are perhaps need to place faith in Jesus come to a place where they would receive that gift by grace. And then, Lord, would you help us look at our world? Would you help us look at the people in our world, Lord? And, and how does grace challenge us to move towards them in gracious ways? How does grace challenge us to dismantle some of the unless you become, you cannot be that we might have in our thinking, God? And how do we lower just these unnecessary barriers to enable people to encounter the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. Do this and help us by your spirit. We ask and pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.